pray with me one more time, church. Father God, we attribute all that we have, all that we have uh, to your Son, Jesus Christ. We know that we are who we are because we have been united to your Son, adopted into your family, and ultimately now we enjoy all the benefits uh, because we are in Christ. And so, Lord, as we turn to your word now, may it uh, challenge us, may it um, exhort us to uh, greater love towards Christ, that he would be our all in all, uh, our joy and our crown. Uh, may he be magnified, we pray in his matchless name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Our pastor, uh, Pastor Glenn, is still out of town seeing family, and so... Uh, also, Scott is too, for some good reason, I think. I should know this, but alas. So it's me and Paul today. Um, I call us the B team, but Glenn and Scott say we're all the A team. I beg to differ. But uh, jokes aside, uh, it's good to minister to you guys today, this morning. Uh, we're continuing on in the book of Corinthians as our, as our pastor began a couple months ago, and we're wrapping up the latter half of chapter 6. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn there. Um, uh, We'll be covering verses 12 to the end of the chapter in verse 20. And so uh, last time I did this, it was was a nice response, so I think we'll do it again. Uh, Please stand with me with the reading of God's Word. And God's word uh, says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, or may it never be. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body or one flesh with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual, immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Thus reads the living word of God. You may be seated. Uh, Cicero, the Roman statesman, once remarked, prudence is the knowledge of things to be sought and those to be shunned. In other words, uh, prudence is wisdom in application uh, or wisdom in practice. Uh, To know what to say and how to say it and when to say it or to know what to do, how to do it, 
and when to do it. Uh, All fall under the jurisdiction of prudence. Uh, Prudence comes from a Latin term, and it's contracted or or it's brought out of a term uh, called providence, some of you may know. Uh, Providence uh, is the ability to see ahead, to foresee. It's a sagacity, if you will. All things we would ultimately attribute to our sovereign God, whom we worship. Providence, then, is as John Piper defines it, God's sovereignty with purpose. God's sovereignty with purpose. Uh, Sovereignty refers to God's right to rule and to reign as he sees fit and good. Uh, Psalm 115, verse 3, uh, many of you may know, says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Uh, providence is, uh, prudence, excuse me, is drawn from this term providence. Uh, to make an analogy, if providence is to God, then prudence is to man. Uh, just how man is made in the image of God, reflecting qualities of God, albeit in a lesser extent, uh, then prudence of man reflects the providence of God. Uh, prudence is wisdom in practice. Uh, it is the ability to, within reason, uh, make decisions and choices that best fit any given situation. Um, and for Christians, uh, any given situation and any decision or choices ultimately must and should glorify God. So here we have providence reserved only for God. And God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He, he rules and he reigns. And God at any given moment may be doing tens of thousands of things and we can only observe one or two or maybe none. Uh, and we also have prudence, uh, wisdom and practice uh, attributed to man. And although man is not completely omniscient or omnipotent or omnipresent like God, we are within our mental faculties that God created us with, we are able to make decisions, make choices that either help or harm, heal or hurt, glorify or vilify. And so by the aid of wisdom, we have the capability of living, prudent, God-honoring, Christ-exalting, spirit-empowered lives. I want to take us down one more rung. Uh, to the arena outside of the image of God, Uh, to the realm of the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, every living and creeping thing that roams the earth, the realm of animals. So to continue our analogy, if providence is to God and prudence is to man, then instinct, instinct would be to animals. Animals are not made in the image of God. They operate purely by instinct. Here God has created animals and given them instinctual impulses that they seek to meet every waking moment of their lives. They instinctually hunt to eat, uh, scour to sleep, and they mate to mate. Animals are animalistic, you would agree. For the Corinthians, they say, all things are lawful for me. Hmm. All things are lawful 
for me. It's a proclamation of this newfound liberty they have in Christ. They have correctly deduced that life is more than just following a set of rules, but rather one of liberty. Amen. Absolutely true. However, in this singular pursuit of liberty and her perceived benefits, these Corinthians have allowed their use, or rather abuse, of liberty to degrade them to pursuing their most base desires. Prudence, then, she has left the room. Wisdom and all of her benefits are thrown out of the window. And ironically enough, in the Corinthians' claim of knowledge, claim to wisdom, claim of liberty, as Pastor Glenn has covered in chapters 1 and 2, their wisdom, uh, in their wisdom, excuse me, true wisdom is actually nowhere to be found, as evidenced by their complete lack of prudence, wisdom in application, complete lack of wisdom in practice. Uh, These Corinthians, this church, have downgraded themselves to the level of animal. Uh, They operate in their desires, in their abuses of liberty, to pursuing nothing more than the extinctual impulses of food, prestige, and in our text, sex. I want to urge and encourage you from the outset of this morning to not be camera shy if you, when it comes to this topic. Uh, For the sole reason by one that uh, this text is about sex and sexual immorality, uh, but it is more than being about sex and sexual immorality. Uh, This text is about the theological mores or the theological background that is going on in such an issue as such as tolerating sexual immorality in the church. Sexual immorality is merely a symptom of a greater heart issue. Uh, Therefore, let us look with clear eyes the anthropology that is undergirding this text. Uh, Paul is arguing from a place of the imago Dei, a place from the image of God. Why is man made in the image of God? For what purpose is the body created the way that it is? Why is sex created in the way that it is? Why is a sin such as sexual immorality such a grievous sin to God? Paul's point is clear and it's found at the end of the chapter in verse 20. Therefore, or so, glorify God in your body. That is the main point of the text, and that is the main point of the sermon this morning. Uh, But let us retrace our steps backwards through Paul's arguments and see how he gets us there. Uh, Chiefly through the question, why was the body made? Uh, Why was man made with a body like this one? Uh, Because we all, in the back of our minds, or presuppositionally, we all know, simply by existing, that humans are more than animals. We are in a different category than them. Anyone can sense, whether they recognize God as Lord and Savior, anyone can recognize and sense the image of God, the Imago Dei. They can identify that uh, their, their life is more than just eating and drinking and procreating. Life well lived then is more than just responding to instinctual urges, but rather governed by prudence and wisdom in the light of God's providence. Uh, So therefore Paul finds it imperative to address what the body is truly made for. That is the glory 
of God. And so we'll see this in five steps, five steps. Um, first being the body is made for the Lord. The body is made for the Lord. Second, the body is made for resurrection. The body is made for resurrection. Uh, third, the body is made for union. The body is made for union. Fourthly, the body is made for indwelling. The body is made for indwelling. And lastly, the body is made for ransom. The body is made for ransom. Look at me, look at with me verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. This brings us to our first step. The body is made for the Lord. All things are lawful for me. This is certainly a true statement. In Christ, previous Levitical restrictions of diet and practice have all been fulfilled in Christ. As Peter was called upon God to kill and eat animals that previously could not be eaten before, the gap between Jew and Gentile were brought closer. Uh, Now you and I can sit down with an ethnically Jewish brother or sister and enjoy some baby back ribs without any hesitation. Go for it. Because if you don't, you have a problem. I'm kidding, I'm kidding to all you vegetarians and vegans out there. But there is a better way. There is a better way. Uh, uh, Paul quotes this blanket statement that the Corinthians love to use. However, he supplements this statement, all things are lawful for me, with two statements of his own. And once again, he'll do so in chapter 10, verse 23. Uh, What the Corinthians thought is wise, that all things are lawful, must be examined under the lens of theological truth. All things are lawful, yes, in the sense that there is no hard and fast rule or hard and fast restriction outside of the rule of love, but Christian Liberty must be tempered by Christian truth. Therefore, Paul first says, not all things are profitable or helpful or build up or edifying. Paul thinks in terms of how does one's practice of Christian liberty build one up? Better yet, build others up. Is there edification? Is there benefit? How does the use of one's body build one up in a given context? Before you decide on exercising your liberty, first consider this question. Is this profitable for me? Is this profitable for others? Does this build me up? Does it lead me to greater Christ-likeness? When others observe me exercising my liberty, will it build them up? Or does it stumble them in their walk with Christ? Furthermore, Paul pushes the envelope further by asking the question, not only is this profitable, is there gain to be had, uh, but does it enslave? Does it shackle you? Uh, Does it bind you down? Does it grow and foster an addiction? When you know you lose self-control over a desire or over practicing your liberty, you know you are approaching dangerous territory. Paul uses the example of food. It says food is meant for the stomach and the stomach is meant for food. Food is meant for the stomach and vice versa. Meaning food is meant for the stomach to be consumed. The stomach requires food to function because that is how the Lord created and designed these things. The Lord has deemed both the stomach and food their individual purposes to come together to work for good, to build up. 
However, Paul says the Lord will do, do away, will destroy both one and the other. Um, these purposes will eventually come to an end. At the end of time, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and ushers us into the eternal state, there will be no need for food. Sorry, baby back rib lovers. There will be no need for food, thereby no need for the stomach requiring food either. Their purposes will have come to an end. However, Paul makes the argument here that the stomach and food are not the same as body and sexual immorality. Namely, the body is not intended for the abuse of immorality, but it is created, it is designed for the purpose of serving the Lord. The Corinthians believed that these were one and the same, just as the food is made for the stomach and the stomach is made for food, that they thought in their liberty that the body is made for sex and sex for the body. But Paul says wrong. That is actually a form of immorality. The Corinthians were in their strange wisdom overthinking their privilege they possessed in Christ. Their bodies are not their own. They have been made by God and for God. The creator dictates creation's purposes. Therefore, man being made and being made in the image of God uh, is still made. So his purposes are dictated by the Lord. Your body belongs to God. He decides how you shall use them. And immorality is not one of these uses. Paul will later address another issue concerning the food, the kind of food the Corinthians ate, which stem from the same core problem, the same misunderstanding as their bodies. But Paul starts off by knocking down this silly trump card of freedom they were using, if you will. All things are lawful for me. One simply cannot do whatever he or she pleases. Paul is arguing this isn't even a matter of whether something is lawful or not, whether it is profitable or edifying or not, whether it enslaves or not. Sexual immorality falls in none of these categories. This is not a Christian liberty issue at all. This is an issue of coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Previously, in verse 7, as Scott covered last week, Paul reminds the Corinthians that they were sanctified and justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Christians are doubly owned, doubly possessed by Christ. If you are a Christian here today, your life, life is given twice over to God. God has created you, and so he owns you by virtue of creation. But in sin and your rebellion, God has saved you through Jesus Christ and therefore has purchased your pardon and owns you again. A classic example that one of my professors like to use is uh, he illustrates how a you know, young boy crafts this model airplane out of materials that he gathered and he purchased. Uh, one day while playing with his model airplane, uh, the boy loses his plane. I mean, he's a boy. What do you expect? And he's very grief-stricken over his loss uh, because he made the toy and he lost it. And a couple of days later while walking through town, he sees his very model plane on display in some sleazy antique store. And he goes into that store and he tells that sleazy owner that that plane is in fact his. That is my plane. And of course, what does the owner say? No, 
This is my plane. I found it. It is mine. What does the boy do? The boy then goes home, he breaks open the piggy bank, and he returns to the store, and he purchases his plane. It doesn't matter how much it costs. That plane is his, and he is going to get it back. Now he doubly owns the plane. He built it, and now he has purchased it. This is the same experience for the Christian. We are made in the image of God, and now we have been reconciled, ransomed back to God. We'll get to this point later, but Paul's point is saying that your body... Your body, which is made by the Lord, purchased by the Lord, is the Lord's. Don't get this wrong. This brings us to our second step. The body is made for resurrection. Look at verse 14. Paul says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Paul explains further how important the body is to the Lord. Just as how God the Father raised the body of the Son, this isn't some pure, purely spiritual resurrection. Jesus didn't spiritually resurrect and the body is still in the tomb. Hence, we wouldn't have an empty tomb. But this is a true, genuine, bodily resurrection. In like manner, our bodies will experience in the same way. This is the glorious outcome of the gospel. Salvation is no mere change in spirit, but rather uh, there are physical realities that have not been fulfilled yet, but are coming. The kingdom of God, though present only spiritually in the people of God, wherever they gather, will be further realized as a real physical kingdom. Jesus will physically reign on David's throne for a millennia. These old, corrupted bodies that are still prone to sin will be transformed, changed into new bodies that can no longer sin. The body, as old and decrepit as this may be, it will be transformed, made for resurrection, preparing for resurrection. Therefore, our bodies now as we seek to live lives that reflect this impending resurrection reality, must be presented, as Paul says elsewhere in Romans, as a pleasing sacrifice acceptable unto the Lord. Uh, We live for resurrection. Uh, We live anticipating a greater reality of what will be, because death is not the end. Death, uh, though unnatural as it is, has been defeated. And so we pine, we long for resurrection, and our obedience now, our bodily obedience, reflects that anticipation. Um, to use an analogy, not many of you here, not even maybe, maybe one person or two persons here, uh, much like how someone would prepare to run a marathon. Whew, who does that? Uh, by doing the necessary training. Uh, so one is preparing for Christ's return through obedience, through evangelism, through worship, through the putting off of sin, through the putting on of Christ-likeness. Technically speaking, you know, indulge me if you will, technically speaking, anyone, I can send Pat Scarfo and tell him to run 26.2 miles. Technically speaking, he might be able to do it, right? Technically. It might take him months, (laughs) years maybe, if the Lord wills. But technically speaking, one person, a person can go from point A and 26.2 miles later to point B. However, that does not mean you are presently ready to run a marathon. Uh, 
And so by submitting our bodies unto the glory of God, now we are training, we are preparing, we are anticipating a greater reality of what is to come in the future. Uh, That is why Jesus speaks by way of parable and that always having your lamps lit, uh, well-oiled, well-furnished, because you do not know when he will return. We want to be in the fittest of shape when Jesus returns. Therefore, something such as sexual immorality does not compute here. It does not make sense when the Christian is preparing to meet his or her bridegroom, Jesus. And this brings us to our third point. And fortunately, we have five points, and we have the third being the theological center of Paul's argument here. The body is made for union. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. We have arrived at the theological center. Why should one glorify God with their body? Because you're united with Christ. The church's identity is found in who she is in relation to her Savior. Namely, she is his bride. and He is her bridegroom. The church was given to the Son of God by the Father in holy matrimony, therefore made members of him in marriage. Just like how in the first marriage between Adam and Eve, God gave the woman to the man and established this first institution, we, the church, in salvation, have been united with Christ. Uh, Union with Christ is the nucleus of truth that gives salvation meaning. Once we were far off from God, separated from him, we had no righteousness of our own and God who dwells in absolute holiness and inapproachable light rightly condemns us into an eternity of suffering without him. However, in God's unfathomable mercy, he saved us not on the basis of deeds of our own righteousness, but by the righteousness of his son. Amen. This is gospel truth. This is basic. This is fundamental to who a Christian is. Therefore, to possess that righteousness, how to make that righteousness our own, the Son's righteousness, a righteousness that cannot be derived by our own strength, one must be united with Him, with the Son. In our union with Christ, Christ's righteousness become our own, His robes for mine, so to speak. Therefore, marriage then, this first institution created by God before any need of salvation was ever in the picture, was actually created by God as a foreshadow of a greater image, greater marriage to come. The marriage between Christ and his church. The church is united with Christ and have become members of his body, just as how a husband and wife become one flesh in covenant union and in covenant consummation. Uh, The church becomes one with Christ by faith through his blood. And what God has brought together, let man, no man, ever bring apart. And so Paul asks the Corinthians this question. Do you not know? Do you not know? In this chapter alone, chapter 6, 
Paul asks this question six times. And if you scroll back on your phones, uh, you see how many more times he has asked the Corinthians this same rhetorical question. Do you not know? By implication, Paul is saying you should know. You should know. You who tout your wisdom, who flaunt your liberty, who express your privilege by being beloved by God, you should know. You should know you are united with Christ. You should know that a little leaven leavens the entire lump of dough. You should know that sinfulness has nothing to do with holiness, as light has nothing to do with darkness. You should know these things. But in your arrogance, Corinthians, Paul is saying, in your privilege, in your all things are lawful for me, riffraff, you exemplify that actually, actually, you do not know. You are not as mature as you think you are. You are not as godly or wise or prudent as you think you are. You are immature. You are babes that need milk instead of solid food. Paul is saying you should know that you are members with Christ, members of Christ. You are members, and Paul will return to this topic later of what it means to be a member in a later chapter, but for now, the Corinthians should know that members with Christ cannot and should not ever made um, be a member with a prostitute in sexual immorality. You cannot join holiness with sinfulness. God will never abide with that. May it never be, Paul says, the strongest adversary uh, Paul has in his Greek arsenal. And so to degrade the holy act, the holy union of sex, and an act reserved only for husband and wife is to degrade and make a mockery of the union Christ has with his bride. Because sex is a picture of that truth. Union with Christ and his bride. The one whom he died for, whom he bled for, whom he pled for. Uh, sexual immorality is spitting in the face of this beautiful picture of the gospel and saying, this means nothing to me. The cross means nothing to me. The blood of Jesus, which can only make atonement for sins, my sins, means nothing to me. To give you another example, we're coming back to a, uh, children. It's as if a child hears Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, the one, that one. And that child, after hearing it, says, I know that song. It's from Tom and Jerry, <laughs> the cartoon that I watch. What a downgrade, right? What a, what a mockery, what a sham uh, to be engaged with any form of porneia, sexual immorality is to run the precious gospel of Christ through mud and through filth. What a downgrade. And so Paul asks rhetorically again, do you not know that when you join yourself with the prostitute, you become one with her? They should know, because they should have read Genesis 2. They should understand that sex is reserved only for the consummation of marriage, because in so doing, husband and wife become one flesh. Therefore, if you are a Christian, married or unmarried, you are joined with Christ in your union with him. This is a heavenly union that all earthly unions points to. If you engage in this debaucherous act, do you not realize that you are joining Christ with sin? That you are bringing your Savior, the bridegroom, the one who has died for sin, to engage with sin. I'm not saying that Christ is sinning when you are sinning, but rather 
look at the picture that is being portrayed here. What has been made holy is returning to its vomit. The body is made for union. Union with Christ ultimately, and to a lesser extent, union with one's spouse. Therefore, glorify God in how you use your body. The Corinthians fooled themselves into thinking, into believing some kind of strange, proto-Gnostic doctrine that the body will be destroyed and will fade away, so therefore they could do whatever they want with their bodies right now. That is simply false. You cannot do simply whatever you want especially not engaged in temple prostitution or, broadly speaking, any form of sexual immorality. The body is made to be united with Christ. Therefore, honor Christ and your union with Him. You do, this, you do so, as, as Paul says in verse 18, by fleeing. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. You flee. Uh, sex in the right context is the, uh, that beautiful portrayal of Christ and his union with the church in the most intimate, safe, emotional space possible. Sex was designed by God for the good and enjoyment of his people, of his children, because just how a husband and wife delight in one another as they consummate their marriage, that portrays a greater picture of how delightful, how intimate one's relationship with his or her Savior, Jesus, can and should be. Just like how the food and the stomach will be done away with In like manner, earthly marriage and earthly consummation will be done away with as well. However, the greater spiritual union we have with Christ shall endure. And so in the time being, Paul gives that definitive command to flee immorality. Just how Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife, so you too must flee. Um, I've spoken with a good amount of young men who struggle with sexual sin and oftentimes in their pride they more or less say that they do not need accountability. They do not need to take drastic measures against this sin. And I simply point them to the example of David. Here you have the man after God's own heart. Here you have King David who could not resist temptation. And instead of fleeing from it, he stayed. He stayed from war and entertained sin. Therefore, when Paul says to flee immorality and you see King David of all people falling into sin, what makes you think you are more strong than David? What makes you think that your walk with the Lord is more vibrant than David? Offer of over a hundred of hundred psalms. What makes you think you can resist this sin when Scripture explicitly tells you to flee, to run, to escape, to get as far away as you can? What makes you think you can do better? Paul concludes by saying that all other sins are committed, sins committed outside the body, whether those sins are committed against someone else or, of course, sins committed against the Lord. But here... Sexual immorality is sin committed against the body, your physical body, absolutely, but more importantly, against the body of Christ, against your union with Him. Let's go one step further. 
Step number four in verse 19, the body is made for indwelling. Paul says, or, different argument, do you not know? Paul asks one more rhetorical question and introduces the Spirit. That not only physically or we have, or uh, united, being united with Christ spiritually, uh, more important, we are one Spirit with Christ, one Spirit with Him. Paul makes one more analogy. The body is like the temple. Similarly with how the Ark of the Covenant and God's visible glory uh, now resting on the you know, the mercy seat of the temple, uh, the Spirit of God uh, now resides within the temple of the body. Uh, this is to signify that worship is no longer relegated to one's physical location, uh, not in the temple of Jerusalem, not in Mount Gerizim, not in synagogues, whatever, not even in church solely. Worship happens everywhere. Um, the Spirit of God causes the soul of man to be born again as it unites the soul with Christ. It would then take up residency within the man, causing regeneration. Here, faith is born. Repentance is born. Worship is all born because that is the Spirit's work. So when Paul says that the Spirit is God, and it's not only just in you, but also given to you from God, you understand that there is more to your body than just you. Your body is made to be indwelt. Jesus says that no one else, unless they are born again, can even perceive, even see the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, it is imperative that the Spirit aids us in not just in this endeavor, but, but everything in life. And so this last rhetorical question circles back to Paul's core argument. At the heart of all this, at the heart of All of this theology, you are not your own. You are God the Father's, God the Son's, and God the Holy Spirit's. Brings us to verse 20. And we circle back to where we started. Namely, that the body is made for ransom. The body is made for ransom. You are not your own. You do not own yourself. God owns you. God owns you as he has made you. The Spirit is a seal of ownership upon you. God owns you because he has ransomed his son for you. The price of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Amen. You and I not only rebelled from our creator, but in so doing created a chasm that could not be crossed unless paid by blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no atonement for sins. Therefore, Paul brings us from the start to finish that we are the Lord's. Our bodies are given over to the Lord. We have been bought by the blood of Christ. And since Jesus paid it all and all to him, we owe, we know when we devote our lives to Christ. Our body is to Christ's. Therefore, all of our lives must be lived unto the glory of Christ and Christ alone. God has made us. He dictates how we must live. God will raise us. He anticipates what life with him will be like. God unites us to his son, Jesus. He demands that we honor and respect his son in the life that we have in him. God indwells us with his Holy Spirit. He expects us to honor his spirit rather than grieve it. And God has bought us, redeemed us so that we would again have life 
in him. Sexual immorality and any other sinful abuse of Christian liberty distorts these truths. Therefore, next time, next time you would entertain or even possibly conceive of a sin like this or any other selfish desire, consider Christ. Consider the cost of the cross. Consider the blood that was shed. And when you practice that consideration, when you reconsider your selfish motives, as a result, you will grow in wisdom. You will grow in prudence. Not to say that you will succeed every single time, but hopefully you'll grow. The Corinthians, by their arrogance of what they thought was wisdom, were actually degrading themselves to passion that mirror animals. The gospel of Jesus Christ, however, enables the man or the woman of faith to live life that best reflects that image of God, the glory of God. So let us glorify God with our bodies. Let's pray. Father, we know and we know, and deep down we often forget that gospel truth demands gospel obedience. And that faith isn't a faith that is alone, but faith supplemented, encouraged by works. Not to say that works save, but Lord, we know that faith works itself out in good deeds. And a part of that is fleeing from sin. And so Lord, help us to honor you in all things, and chiefly with our bodies, knowing that there was much paid for, much done in order to wash us, in order to justify us, in order to sanctify us, God. And so let us never graduate from these truths. Let us never move past thinking that we've become better, we've grown wiser, and so we can indulge more. Let us never think so loosely like that. Help us to live in a way that honors you and your son because in your son is so much better, so much better life to be had. Help us to live a life well lived for him, unto him, and through him we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.